Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Beautiful people, I want to thank you for joining me here 
on KPOO San Francisco 89.5. This is Prison Focus Radio, and I am your host, Nube Brown. We are going to continue with the, uh, this is the last week for uh Shining the light on the International Tribunal 2021, we charge genocide. Um, We did, in fact, have a verdict, which we are going to, I am going to read at the end of the show. But uh, before we get there, we are going to be listening to some of the, we're going to be hearing some testimony from some of the witnesses that were there present in front of the international jurors who uh, were, uh, during Saturday and Sunday, the 23rd and the 24th, were making their determinations based on the uh, testimony put before them. So we are first going to hear from Sekou Odinga, um, a, a political prisoner, and it was, it was obviously is now home, thank God, who is now an elder, and we are going to hear his testimony. You can watch the whole tribunal from beginning to end, starting the 22nd through the 25th, if you go to tribunal2021.com. That is the International Jurors website where all of the, the where the whole tribunal um, is recorded. So I do encourage all of you to go there. Um, but without further ado, I'm going to get started because I'm hoping that I will be able to uh, bring as many voices as possible um, before we get to the verdict. All right, here we go. The list goes um, on and on, Herman, uh, and the like. So we would like to have Sekou Odinga come and take the stand, and he is going to be examined by attorney from the West Coast. We're going to put him on the screen. Attorney Ade Jackson. And welcome home. Miss, you've been home for a while, but, you know, I got to just say, you know, it's just heartwarming that you're no longer behind bars. And hopefully many, 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 many more will follow suit. Attorney Ade, I'm going to t- uh, turn it over to you, my brother. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, my name is Ade Jackson. I'm an attorney here in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm here, you know, as the examiner for uh, for the witness. And uh, can you state your name for the record, please? Sekou Ngabazi Abdullah Odinga. Thank you. And, you know, I'm going to get straight to it. Um, Do you consider yourself a political prisoner? I did consider myself a political prisoner when I was in prison, yes. And how did you become a political prisoner? I become a political prisoner through my political activities and being captured by the oppressor state. I I was a uh, combatant in the Black Liberation Army and was captured in 1981 while trying to help transport another combatant, another soldier of the Black Liberation Army. He was captured also, but murdered in the street while uh, while he lay there in submission, trying to give up. They 
walked up behind him and shot him in the back of the head. So, but because of our political activities against the state, I consider myself a political prisoner. And I would say that based on how we were treated, how I was treated, the state considered me a political prisoner also. And can you explain why you think the state even considered you a political prisoner? Well, first of all, after my capture, I was beaten and tortured for the next six to seven hours. They, uh, usually, police in the states, they capture somebody or arrest someone. They don't, they don't torture them for no six or seven hours. They'll, they might smack them upside the head or beat them up a little bit for a few minutes, 10, 15 minutes, that's par for the course, you know. But political prisoners, they, political prisoners, they usually uh, save a particular uh, brutal uh, torture for them if they decide to torture them. And they decided to torture me. So on my way from the streets to the precinct, I was, uh, my head was split open with a uh, handheld walkie-talkie that one of the cops, after he cuffed me in the back of my, in the back with my hands on my back, decided to hit me in the head, knock me down, almost knock me out. And that's how it started. But from there into the, into the precinct, they took me, they kept me cuffed with my hands behind my back uh, stood on, stood two police on each side of me and started interrogating me. And every time I would answer a question that they would ask me that they didn't like the answer, they would beat me or burn me with a cigar. Or at one point they decided to take my shoes off and one of them had these big engineer boots. He just took and grind my toe until the toenail came off the toe. It was, uh, and this went on for about, like I said, six to seven hours. They took me into the bathroom, stuck my head in the toilet and flushed the toilet. I, I guess that was their, their idea of a waterboard or whatever, but all the time asking me questions about other comrades that they were looking for, Asada Shakur being one of them, uh, Abdullah Majid being another one, but the number of people they were looking for, and they thought I might know who they were, and they they continued to uh, to brutalize me. And were there other times that you were tortured by federal or state authorities? No, that that was the main time. You know, that I was never. After that, I got into confrontations with prison guards, but never tortured. Never no systematic beatings and torture like that. The, from uh, from that initial torture, I wound up in the hospital for thirty for, for three months. You know, uh, they basically destroyed my pancreas and uh, from all the beating in the body. And uh, 
the, the toe was really messed up pretty bad. And the, the, but I, I wound up staying in, staying in the hospital for about three months. Then they took me out of the hospital before the doctors would, uh, would uh, discharge me and put me on trial uh, straight from the hospital to the courthouse. Yeah. And did your political organizing end up affecting your legal case? Repeat that for me. Did your political organizing end up affecting your legal case in that courthouse? I think so. Yes, I definitely believe so. Well, actually, because of the stand that I took, which was that the oppressive state had no right to try me, that I should be tried by a uh, separate state that uh, was not involved in the oppressing of uh, my people. Uh, and because I took that stand as a political prisoner, uh, I think it, it, it went against me. I know both in both cases that I was charged in the federal and in the state uh, jurisdictions, and both jurisdictions gave me as much time as they could give me. So I think it 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 it, it, uh, it played a part. Yes. And could you explain this right to struggle for oppressed people? Well, I think. Uh, the international community has recognized, uh, you can look at some of the Geneva Conventions and some of the uh, treaties that were signed in the, uh, the United Nations uh, dealing with colonized and oppressed people. Uh, most all of them give the right to oppressed people to struggle against their oppressor by any means, including arms. And throughout the world for many years now, especially since the, 70, the 60s and 70s, uh, colonized people have picked up arms to try to get their freedom from the oppressor and have been recognized by other states uh, as legitimate uh, uh, freedom fighters. This state here, the United States, actually supports other people who fight against oppressive states, as long as they're not fighting against them or one of their close allies. Then, then it's all changes. Then they, like I heard one of our other witnesses say, they don't recognize any uh, political prisoners in this state. They criminalize struggle here, but a political struggle in the United States is, is always criminalized if it's if it's a revolutionary struggle. How could you actually describe for us the conditions of your confinement? Well, all right. I was initially taken to a county jail and locked into what they call segregation. Uh, from there, I was sent to another county jail 
and put on the on the main line, the general populations. Uh, but all the time, I was always kind of pulled aside. Like any kind of transportation, for instance, if I went from one prison to another or one court to another or from the, the prison to the hospital because I was still under doctor's care because of the, the initial uh, torture that they gave me. Uh, they would always have a whole uh, caravan of police and helicopters uh, following my car or surrounding my car, the car that I was being held at. Uh, which they never did to a social prisoner, you know, that was only set aside for political prisoners. Uh, when I was initially, when I was first found guilty in, in both jurisdictions, I was found guilty in this, this, uh, federal, uh, jurisdiction for the liberation of Asada Shakur and for, uh, the uh, expropriation of an armored truck. And I was found guilty in the state court of attempted murder of police when we had a, a shootout or a shoot back. When they shot at us, we shot back. Uh, when we were first cap, when we were first, uh, when I was first captured on the day that we were captured. Uh, so, uh, we was all, I was always treated differently. For, for instance, when I was found guilty, instead of going to a regular prison, they took me to a lockdown prison, Marion, Illinois, directly from court. Marion, Illinois was supposed to be set aside for incorrigible prisoners who couldn't get along in any other prison. Then they send you to uh, Marion. But I was never even allowed to go to another prison. I was sick directly to Mary and all the time in Mary and the time that I spent in Mary they all and I spent 16 years in Mary and off and on uh, out of the 28 years I spent in the feds in fact I spent 19 years in lockdown prisons the whole time I was out of the 28 years I spent in the, the federal prison for and never for any offense I never had a uh disciplinary charge or nothing like that that sent me to these to the prison it was always I think based on my political beliefs and views because anything somebody else did in the prison they would they would always try to throw me into it for instance in in Long Park when I was in Long Park uh, one of the other prisoners uh he was attacked by the police and he killed he killed one of them and wounded two or three of them now i was nowhere no, nowhere near him i was in another block completely but they locked me up and said that i influenced him to do that it's uh that's that's what i mean by uh being treated differently got it and um, are you aware of any other political prosecutions? Yes. Yes, Abdu Abdullah Majid, uh, uh, Bashir Hamid, theirs were definitely political uh, prosecutions. Both of them have 
dying now, but they were, they died in prison, yeah. And are you aware of any tactics that federal and state authorities use to eliminate political prisoners? To do what prisoners? Eliminate political to prisoners? To eliminate, yes, medical neglect. Definitely, that's one of the ways they, they get rid of us, is that they don't give you the medical attention that you you, you need and you deserve. Uh, like Abdullah Majid, the one I just mentioned, he died of something that was very easily treated if they would have treated him, and he had been complaining about pain, but they, they wouldn't take him, they just give him an aspirin and tell him to go back to his cell. He eventually died from, uh, I think it was a, a, a gallbladder or a kidney. I can't remember which, but we were told that it would it would have been easily treated if they would have it would have initially treated. So yeah, medical neglect. That's that's one of the main ways they eliminate uh, political prisoners. And did COINTELPRO play a role in your life? COINTELPRO, the, the counterintelligence program, absolutely. I believe that uh, counterintelligence program was, I know that it was instituted to uh, disrupt and to destroy uh, revolutionary struggle or any real struggle against the system, but especially revolutionary struggle. Uh, the Black Panther Party, which I was a part of, uh, was uh, singled out as being the biggest threat in this country based on what J. Edgar Hoover said, uh, the head of the FBI at the time. And we were always uh, uh, singled out, attacked, and uh, harassed, murdered, brutalized, you name it. And thank you for sharing your testimony. Uh, I, I move this tribunal to receive any exhibit, exhibits or documents that the witness wants to submit in addition to his testimony today. And uh, I, I have no further questions. So thank you, witness, and uh, free them all. Black power, Black Lives Matter, and uh, it's great. Thank you. In community. Thank you. All right, we are now going to hear witness testimony from Robert Salim Holbrook. You may begin with your direct examination of this witness. Thank you, Chief Counsel in Kichi Taifa. To all of my brothers and sisters, comrades and colleagues, and most especially to our distinguished jurists, I am Jeribu Hill, human rights attorney from, from the Mississippi Workers' Center for Human Rights that was established in 1996 to address human rights wrongs in Mississippi workplaces and the suffering of black workers and other oppressed, not, not only workers, but other oppressed people within the state of Mississippi. And I know that I don't really have to go deep into the history for most of you certainly know. Appreciate the reference earlier to Emmett Till and Mamie Till and onward with getting justice for Emmett Till. 
Today, I am charged with the, the delightful opportunity to uh, guide you through the story of our brother, Salim Holbrook, who has an amazing story, an amazing history of struggle and resistance, no compromising and truth telling. And so welcome, Brother Salim, Executive Director, Salim Holbrook, welcome. All right, the tribunal was having a little bit of technical difficulty, but we will get back to the introduction of Salim Holbrook. The work of sharing your story as, as both an abolitionist and a revolutionary scholar and thinker and activist, I'd like you to first just tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What's your birthplace? I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, North Philly. I um, was born in 1974. And you are currently executive director of an organization, is that correct? Yes, I am. Can you tell us the name of the organization and a bit about the mission of the organization? Yes, I'm the executive director of the Abolitionist Law Center. The Abolitionist Law Center. The Abolitionist Law Center is a dismantling law project um, it was born out of the Human Rights Coalition, which is an organization that was co-founded by myself, Curry Shakabuna Marshall, Russell Maroon Schultz, and about a dozen other prisoners in solitary confinement in Pennsylvania. It was composed of our family members and many of the attorneys and staff who are at the Act Abolitionist Law Center started off as volunteers and activists for the Human Rights Coalition back in 2001 when we started. So we've been doing this for a while. And uh, what is the primary reason why the organization was formed? I mean, the Abolitionist Law Center was founded to address the race and class-based discrimination in this system, but also the disregard um, and the abuse that black life faces in America, black and brown life faces in America, particularly black youth who are caught up in the criminal justice system. Um, and well, for me personally, my experience uh, guides the Abolitionist Law Center's work because as someone who at the age of 16 years old um, was facing a death sentence and was sentenced to spend the rest of my life in prison, ultimately served 27 years in prison, 10 of those in solitary confinement. The longest I spent consecutively was three years. Um, our work was born out of that experience, but more importantly, not just my experience, because I don't want to just center myself, but it was born out of the experience of political prisoners in Pennsylvania, because it was political prisoners when I was buried in that hole, me and other children who came through, when we were being preyed upon, it was political prisoners who, who embraced us, who protected us, um, who built us up, in many cases became our fathers. Um, and so for me, that guides our work. Right. Because to come home and be released and forget about them who helped us at our lowest moments, that's something that, you know, as a human being, I just was not raised by, like that. And they did not raise us like that. So I do want to center them, you know, in my experience, because had it not been for Russell Maroon Schultz, who is presently dying of stage four cancer right now, a political prisoner in Pennsylvania and who was denied compassionate release by a judge, 
who was denied the opportunity to go home to his family and close his eyes with his family surrounding him, not a bunch of guards, not shackled to a hospital bed to die with dignity because I know that there's no dignity in death in prison. He was an inspiration for our work, right? So we're, when I say the word dismantling project, I don't mean that, um, I don't take that lightly. You know, we, we, we meet the state where they're at. Um, we're willing to fight just as hard as they are against us because that's the regime that we come out. That's our experiences. And I would like to live in a society one day where there's no need for an abolitionist law center, right? That's what we're working for. But as long as we have oppression, racism, as long as we have black youth being murdered in the street, black youth being sentenced to die in prison, and brown youth, and women, um, there's going to be a need for an abolitionist law center. People are going to fight as hard as we fight, inspire and motivated by the legacy of black resistance and political prisoners in this country. Well, thank you for your statement. Thank you so much for clarifying and letting us know exactly why there is an abolitionist law center. Now the word abolition is it's certainly scary. I know it was scary for the slave masters and I don't imagine it's any less scary today to actually talk about abolition. Can you, for the benefit of the jurists who are going to be unpacking your testimony and, and looking into the substance and text of your testimony, testimony, can you tell us what your understanding is or what your definition is of abolition? I mean, for me, it's, it's clear cut. When you have a system that was founded on explo exploitation, that was founded on genocide, and its legacy continues today, I don't think there's any alternative but abolition. Um, I think that we have tried um, for centuries, and in, in my lifetime, I've, I've seen this for decades. I've seen us try and reform this system, right? Um, in 2020, we all witnessed national uprisings against police violence against police murder, extrajudicial murder in this country. However, that uprising was nothing new. We saw it in the 1960s. We saw it in 1980 in Liberty City. We saw it in 1992 in Los Angeles. We could go back to the riots of 1919 and we could go back further. This is an epidemic in this country that we have been dealing with for generations. It's unfortunately that I had to experience this when political prisoners and movements 30, 40, and 50 years ago were fighting against this system and the abuses that it brings upon us. And, it, and for me, the common theme and even a common failure that I see is that when you look at all of the after action reports, when you look at all the government reports, all of the city reports, all of them trot out the same tired reforms that were trotted out the last time there was an uprising the last time there was a riot, the last time we felt the need to have to take to the streets and set something on fire or overturn something so that this country could not respect our lives because it has shown that it's never going to do that, but to respect our pain or at least see our pain. When you see all these reforms and you see it's just the same thing, you have to come to two realizations, either as a community or a movement or a nation, we're insane because we keep doing the same thing over and over, or that this tactic is failed and now we have to push further for abolition because you can't reform it. And I hope that 
20 years from now, or maybe even five years from now, when there's a next national uprising and the world sees this, that we're not in the same position where we're talking about banning chokeholds, having police cameras on, on officers, um, more money to police officers, um, better training. I don't know how many trainings I've sat through or listened to um, until we realize that it's the system that needs to be abolished. I think that we're going to be facing the same oppression and the same heartache and the same pain as a people. Thank you so much for that. And in the interest of time, uh, Mr. Salim Holbrook does have an extensive biographical uh, description of some of his work, some of the organizations, and some of the writings that he has uh, created that have been published through Turnout and other uh, publication arms. We want to make sure that we move the entire bio into the record so that if there are certain documents, including articles that need to be footnoted and referenced, they can be done so at that time. Now, as we move on, because I know our time is running out, I'd like you just to, for a moment, take yourself back to 1991. What actually happened to you? You mentioned earlier that you and so many others went into the system as children. Tell us what happened to you in 1991. Well, I was arrested in 1990. I was sentenced in 1991. But, you know, when I was 16 years old, I was involved in a drug-related homicide. I was a 16-year-old lookout. Um, I did not kill the victim. I did not strike the victim. I didn't even see the victim being killed. But I had to reach a stage in my life where... If I tell this story, I have to acknowledge at least my responsibility in a human being's death, even though I was not the perpetrator of it. So I do want to uh, take a moment for that space whenever I you know, reflect back on that night, what happened. Um, I was a lookout to a homicide. I was subsequently arrested. Two weeks after my arrest, when I was at the Youth Study Center on the fifth floor of security, a platoon of guards came down to my cell door. I was sitting on my bed. It was in the afternoon. They opened the door. About six of them stepped in. They had an envelope in their hand. They opened the envelope in front of me, handed me a clipboard to sign. I signed it. They handed me the paper. They turned around and walked out the cell. I looked down, opened up. It was a letter from the district attorney's office, and it was telling me that the state was was uh, filing capital charges against me, and it, if I was convicted, I would be subjected to the death sentence. So 16 years old, that's my first contact with the United States justice system. Um, I just sat on my bed trying to figure out what this meant. Um, fortunately, I was not sentenced to death. Um, However, the state did sentence me to die in prison. I was sentenced to life without parole. Mandatory sentencing uh, required that the judge could not take into consideration my culpability or my actual participation in the offense. But the fact that I knew that someone was being killed and stayed there, that was enough not to just get me subjected to spending the rest of my life in prison, but being sentenced to death, uh, which I was fortunate to avoid only because I agreed to plead guilty to a lesser degree of murder and put my fate in the hand of a judge. Had I not did that, I would have, if I would have been convicted of first-degree murder, I would have faced a death sentence. Um, so I was sentenced to life without parole. Um, 
I was fortunate in 2020 that the United States Supreme Court ruled that children could not be sentenced to mandatory life without parole sentences, and I was eligible for a resentencing hearing, which I had tremendous community support. Even the judge that sentenced me wrote a letter and saying, had I had any discretion in sentencing him, I would have never sentenced him to life without parole. The tragedy is, though, that I'm not an exception. I'm not sitting up here telling my stories. I'm something special. There were hundreds of us sentenced to life without parole. I was very fortunate that I was able to make it out. Many of us that I know didn't. Uh, many of my friends hung themselves, killed themselves. Uh, others were killed. Uh, I could think of one juvenile lifer, a, a, a friend of mine named John Carter. We used to call him J-Rock. Um, in 2011, he was murdered at SCI Rockview because a prisoner had his food tray uh, skipped over for the night and J-Rock held his tray slot open to try and get the prisoner his meal for the night and the guards tear gassed him to death in his cell. Um, you know, the, the unfortunate thing about that is he died one year after the United States Supreme Court decision of Miller that, that paved the way for us to be coming home. He could have benefited from that, but he, he was murdered by a correctional officer at SCI Rockview because he was standing up for a prisoner who was denied his his, his food. Um, it was around the same time that Eric Garner died um, in the uprisings. And I remember us feeling invisible on the inside because many of us were being abused. Many prisoners were being killed, but there was no movement for us. Um, and I remember us saying, like, when we get out, we're going to make sure that our voices are not just heard, but we're going to center our voices and spaces, um, regardless to who likes it or not. Um, so, you know, I think of so many that didn't make it out um, who were children. But I also think of ones who made it out but left so much of themselves inside, um, who, who are home and, and went insane. Um, Many of us lost a lot of uh, lost a piece of our soul. You can't do 27 years in prison and think that you're coming home whole, right? Many of us were deprived of the opportunity to have children, to raise families. Um, so we lost a lot. I'd like to say that, you know, I paid my debt to the state. I gave them more and some. Um, I don't owe the state anything. You know, if anything, I owe my community a debt, right? And many of us are coming out here with that uh, mentality. So I do want to center that not just in Pennsylvania, but in this country. This country continues to sentence children to spend the rest of their lives in prison. This country continues to, to, to funnel thousands of black and brown youth into the adult system um, where you either have two choices, fight or die. And when I say die, I'm not just talking about a physical death. I'm talking about a spiritual. I'm talking about an emotional death, right? So it, it's two forms of deaths that, 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 that you face in there as children. You, you, you experience that as adults, um, but as children, it, it's different. Um, and this country continues to do it. The United States Supreme Court just, the decision that released me with this Supreme Court that's in power now, they just rolled that decision back. So I was very fortunate, myself and hundreds of other children that were sent to life without parole in Pennsylvania, we were very fortunate to, kept, to catch that window to get out because that window has shut already. Pennsylvania has just restarted sentencing people to life without parole, children or life without parole again. The United States is, is picking the practice back, back up. And that, that's an example too, that in the United States, victories won have to be held. Um, we, we, can't, we can't rest on our laurels, um, but also more importantly that there is a higher law 
And that's why there's a human rights law. These rights are inherent. And I, and I was thinking of what Jose Saldana, you know, one of my comrades and, and also someone that I look up to when he talked about what happened to him. And he said in, in, in New York, there is no law of self-defense for, for shooting back against police. But I do want to say that there is human beings have an inherent human right to self-defense. And that's something that's really important, especially that when we're in this, this autobahn, because this is where Malcolm X told us that civil rights has run its course. Civil rights are a narrow interpretation of our rights. And when we were in prison, we were in solitary confinement, and Russell Maroon Schultz said, we're going to call our organization the Human Rights Coalition. He centered what Malcolm said to us. He said, because what we're going to be asking for is something that the state cannot give us or take us. These are our inherent human rights, our rights to self-determination, our rights to dignity, our rights to self-defense, our rights to self-reliance, our rights to develop as full human beings. And that's something that the state cannot take from us. But this country continues to strip black and brown youth by the thousands, by the tens of thousands of those rights, by, sense, by, by funneling them into adult prisons where they will either spend the rest of their lives or they will be so destroyed as human beings it's essentially a civil death because when they come home, I, I, you know, I, I'm very fortunate that I had a movement around me that could support me. Um, but it's not like this all around the country. There are many other formerly incarcerated children, and there's many people who are in prison who are children or were children that are suffering right now while we're, we're speaking. And thank you for bringing all of those who are victims of this repressive, exploitive genocidal system. Thank you for bringing every last one of them, for doing your own personal roll call to lift up some of the names. And as, as we begin to wind down and close out the testimony, not because I want to, but I know that we do have a time issue. I would love it if you could tell the jurists and all of my brothers and sisters present at this tribunal, if you could share a little bit more about what, what, what life was like in the home. When you and I were talking last night, you clarified for me that that was the same thing as, uh, or was synonymous with solitary confinement. And you mentioned a little while ago that you spent 10 years off and on in solitary confinement. You also last night talked about some of the other brothers who had been in solitary confinement. Can you talk about the conditions in solitary confinement and touch on a little bit the general conditions of confinement and why this whole issue of prisoners' rights is a human right. Because we can't rely on the U.S. Constitution. We do have the Eighth Amendment, which supposedly prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. But how cruel and unusual is it for someone to be relegated and subjected to solitary confinement for 10 years Tell us about some of the others who were even uh, subjected to this cruelty for longer periods of time and lift up some of the names, if you will. So the Eighth Amendment, yeah, let's talk about the Eighth Amendment, which prohibits cruel and unusual pun punishment in this country. The Eighth Amendment allowed the state of Pennsylvania to keep Russell Maroon Schultz in solitary confinement for 30 years. The Eighth Amendment allowed the state of Pennsylvania to keep Joseph Jojo Bowens continuous in these solitary confinement for 34 years. The Eighth Amendment allowed the state of Pennsylvania to keep Fred Muhammad Burton in solitary confinement for 19 years. 
Eighth Amendment is in, in Pennsylvania allowed the state to keep Arthur Chetaway Johnson in continued solitary confinement for 39 years. All of these were political prisoners and they were in the hole for a reason because the state wanted to separate them from us, from other prisoners. I was, you know, I hate to say that I was fortunate, but when I was in solitary confinement, I was fortunate to be put on the range with these men. And they were the ones that if you were young and you went back in the hole, if you went back into the hole and were put on the range with them, you were very fortunate because you knew that you were gonna get an education, right? But the state did not want us to speak to them. The state did not want us to be them. Actually, the state was saying that if you wanna be like them, this is the, the, they're the example for you. You will be in the hole for decades. Um, but we rejected that model because we, they were giving us something. They were giving us life while the state was taking it. So it was like the state was strangling us and they were recitating us. So we was like, I'm gonna go with what's giving me air, not with what's taking my life. Um, but the experience, the only thing I can say about solitary confinement is solitary confinement is every individual person's own particular hell. That's the best way of describing Like, it impacts people differently. It impacts people in their own way. You see some people that go inward and never come out because you tear yourself apart. Um, you see some people that just project so much outward because they're gone mentally. But the conditions, look, you know, you're in a cell, in, in many of our cases, with just a pair of boxers, a t-shirt, you might be lucky if you get flip-flops, a couple books, a sheet, um, toilet paper. And the remarkable thing I find about that is that I've been in a cell completely naked with nothing in that cell. And I would see a Lieutenant come and look in that cell and stand there and figure out what more could he take? What more could they take? And it was in those moments that I realized that there's nothing else that you could take, right? That's the mentality that you have to have to survive. But if you don't have that mentality, that those, those are the people, unfortunately, who are gonna take their life because they have reached that point. Every human being, I don't care who you are, has a breaking point. And then how you break is really gonna depend on your experiences and at what level you break. Um, and it's the people that who are in those type of conditions are the ones who are gonna kill themselves, are gonna go so insane that they never come back. So, you know, I, I would like to just go minutely into each particular form of hell that solitary confinement is, but I don't, I don't know if I have right now the mental space to, 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 to do it and, and we have the time. But what I can say is that solitary confinement in the United States is based on stripping people who already have nothing, finding what more can we take from you. Um, and you have to be a remarkable human being to make it out of that experience um, and repair yourself because you're going to be damaged. No, no doubt about it. You're going to be damaged. No, no doubt about it. You're going to be damaged. Um, so that's what I'll say about solitary confinement. It's, it's inhumane. Um, and in the United States, it is common. It, it, is, it is part of the system. And, you know, you don't have to be a political prisoner in the United States to spend years in solitary confinement. There's many, many of us have. So thank you, Salim. We, we can't thank you enough for your courage for your profound understanding of the system, the system of oppression, and for your everyday work 
to abolish that system, to dismantle that system of oppression, genocide, international tribunal, 2021. Juris, I offer you the testimony of Salim Holbrook, a fighter, an abolitionist, a human rights defender. I also offer you his bio to share and learn from and to visit some of his writings if you have the time. Salim, it's been my, my honor to sit with you for these few minutes and to learn and to be inspired all over again by your uh, revolutionary courage and the work. I wish you much success. I hope to see you in person at some point. I know that you have plans to visit us here in the state of Mississippi and you will certainly be welcomed with open arms and hearts. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and an honor hearing from you today. Thank you so Alfred. much. Uh, it is here that um, as Salim Holbrook had left the stage already, but one of the jurists actually had a question for him. So uh, here is, is that exchange. How did you get back your strength, your resilience, and your dignity, and address each of one of us with a confidence which appears our hearts, minds, and soul? How did you do it? even after all these years of time trying to take your humanity, your resilience, and your dignity. How did you do it? And thank you so much for your courage. Thank you, thank you. I didn't have to get it back because they never took it. I never allowed them to take it. Um, That's it Oh, Thank you so much. All right, um, you heard uh, Salim Holbrook speak of Russell Maroon Schultz. And I am happy to say uh, with a deep breath of gratitude that Russell Maroon Schultz has been granted compassionate release by Judge Kai Scott. And that happened on the day of the verdict by the international jurors on October 25th, 2021. Maroon had been in prison for over 49 years and he suffers a rapidly deteriorating health um, due to stage four uh, colorectal cancer. His condition is terminal and now requires palliative care that involves uh, parenteral nutrition uh, through an IV, which the PADOC has neglected to provide, but thankfully he will be able to go home. Another piece of amazing news, which really lets me believe that a shift is taking place, and this international tribunal we charge genocide is a part of it. Just today, um, as th this is a pre-recording, as you know, and today is October 26th. Today, we have just been informed that David Gilbert is also was granted parole. He was granted um, a commutation uh, before Cuomo left. Um, uh, his uh, stint as mayor of New York and uh, governor of New York, excuse me, and offered uh, 15 commutations. Only David Gilbert had to go to the parole board again because of his political 
uh, stance, but he has now been granted parole. He is 76 years old, and if you don't know, he is the father of our district attorney, San Francisco district attorney, Chesa Boudin. Welcome home to both of these men, and um, we are just so grateful that you get to be with your families at the um, at these last uh, years of your lives. Now we are going to hear, I'm going to read the verdict from the international jurors. Um, it is quite powerful. Guilty on all counts. After hearing from over 30 witnesses and receiving hundreds of documents, the panel of jurists found the U.S. government and its subdivisions guilty of genocide and gross human rights violations. The executive summary verdict which follows is their preliminary report with a detailed and cited ruling to appear in the near future. Introduction, the context of our work and why we are here. The fact that the United States has committed an array of human rights abuses against black, brown, and indigenous peoples should be as uncontroversial as it is incontrovertible. There is widespread agreement that settler colonists committed genocide and other crimes against the indigenous populations while taking their lands. No one would disagree that enslaved Africans were forced to work the settler colonial lands for hundreds of years in subhuman conditions. The historical record tells the history of additional human rights abuses committed against Mexicans and other groups as the U.S. expanded west and colonized countries like Puerto Rico. No one doubts that Japanese were forced into concentration camps during World War II or that blacks were lynched and brutalized during Jim Crow. The current president of the United States acknowledges these crimes. His secretary of state recently confirmed this while stating, quote, great nations such as ours do not hide from our shortcomings. They strive to improve with transparency, unquote. If laudable, such sentiments ring hollow unless met by action. The spirit of Mandela Coalition petitioned for the creation of this tribunal because they believe that not only are U.S. human rights abuse, quote, shortcomings, not being fully acknowledged, but that the U.S. has sought to bury a number of these crimes. The coalition enlisted a prosecutor in Ketchi Taifa to argue their case. Their indictment on behalf of black, brown, and indigenous peoples in the U.S. charges the U.S. government and its state and local political subdivisions with crimes committed in five areas. Police racism and violence, mass incarceration, political prisoners and prisoners of war, environmental racism, public health inequalities. Further, they argue that the U.S. has committed genocide. In 2021, the International Tribunal on U.S. Human Rights Abuses Against Black, Brown, and Indigenous Peoples convened as an independent body to hear the case. We did so as a quasi-legal body in the tradition of People's Tribunals dating back to the Russell Tribunal and the Permanent People's Tribunal, among others. While evaluating the, change, the charges in terms of international and domestic human rights law and practice, we also recognize that such legal structures have limitations that can reinforce racism and deny voice and redress to black, brown, and indigenous peoples as the prosecution in this case alleges. To assess the merits of the case, the tribunal convened from October 23rd through the 25th, 2021. Over the course of two days, the jurists heard 18 attorneys and students of law solicit evidence from 30 witnesses from across the U.S. Background. The panel of jurists heard testimony emphasizing the millions upon millions of indigenous and African people's murders disappeared and nearly exterminated over a period from 1490 through to through the present. Further, 
The witnesses and prosecution argued that the wrongs have been historic and deliberate with colonization, racism, militarism, imperialism, materialism, criminalization, patriarchy, neocolonialism, and internal colonialism as part of the larger process that now manifests itself in medical and digital apartheid, chemical warfare, environmental violence and racism, divestment and a pandemic of accessible guns and drugs with the majority of gun violence perpetrated by police and security forces in the false claim of upholding law and order. Statements were made testifying to new forms of colonialism, which include the prison industrial complex, the military industrial complex, and the commercialization of our health and privatization and commodification of all social services. The testimonies include substantial evidence of the erasure of histories, Distortion and cultural misappropriation contributes to and exacerbates the attempted invisibilization and denial of people's basic humanity. The profound impacts of all of these realities extend beyond the erasure and attempt to exterminate black, brown, and indigenous lives. Hence, as one witness stated, the colonization of the spirit and mind continues to this day. The testimonies of this tribunal reaffirm the traditional wisdom and knowledge of black, brown, and indigenous peoples. Strong evidence was presented on the indomitable, unbreakable resistance and resilience of the people's struggle for justice and dignity. In the face of egregious human rights violations and crimes against humanity, this spirit of collective survival shone through. The 2021 International Tribunal on U.S. Human Rights Abuses Against Black, Brown, and Indigenous Peoples was initiated by a U.S. coalition in the spirit of Mandela. Its own recognized legacy based on efforts dating from the 1951 We Charge Genocide petition to the present rests on the idea that any examination of U.S. human rights must be done in an international context. The panel of jurists came together as an independent body made up of legal scholars, human rights advocates and activists, and community leaders. Utilizing the international criminal law on genocide and other instruments, the panel convened to hear and review the testimony organized by Spirit of Mandela legal team. The accused, though informed, did not respond to the charges and indictment against them, nor did they appear as invited to present a defense. Here I am going to encourage you to read the full executive summary of these counts uh, by going to tribunal2021.com or, of course, sfbayview.com. Proceedings. The following is a summarized and preliminary presentation of the testimony based on police killings, mass incarceration, political prisoners, prisoners of war, environmental racism, public health inequities. And while these crimes are well documented, they have more rarely been acknowledged, remedied and addressed with some very distant from public knowledge. The judgment. Despite the need for further deliberation on the extensive submissions and documents from varied expert witnesses, a deep analysis from the jurists found that the process did sufficiently cover the scope and elements of all five counts in the indictment as having legal standing and hence legitimacy. A full and detailed judgment will follow regarding our findings on these counts. After having heard the testimony of numerous victims of police racism, mass incarceration, environmental racism, public health inequities, and of political prisoners and prisoners of war, together with the expert testimonies and graphic presentations, as well as the copious documentation submitted and admitted into the record, the panel of jurists find the U.S. and its subdivisions guilty of all five counts 
we find grounds that acts of genocide have been committed. Signed the 25th October 2021 Panel of Jurists, Church Center of the United Nations. All right, beautiful people, that is our show. We will continue to do the work from here on out to see the whole tribunal go to tribunal2021.com. Um, all power to the people. Get ready for work week with Steve Seltzer. <laughs>